Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to episode three of the Movement Logic podcast. I'm Laurel Beversdorf, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Sarah Court. Today, we're talking about massage including self-massage, using a ball, foam roller, massage gun, all the tools. When research around massage is so inconclusive, research shows, for example, there's no difference between massage interventions to achieve certain outcomes like relaxation, flexibility versus other interventions like static stretching. Why do we still do massage? What exactly does massage do? Starting with what I think might be the most central question, which is that if we're massaging ourselves or getting a massage to fix something, what is it that we're trying to fix? Many, for example, claim that it's the fascia we're trying to fix because the fascia is stuck or sticky or dehydrated or there's knots in it. Uh, is that those claims true? And if we are using massage to fix some specific problem. The second central question is, is massage actually going to create some meaningful change to that problem? Um, there's been a lot of inconclusive research. I won't go into the details of some of the studies that I've encountered. Um, and I certainly haven't poured over the research by any means but it seems to be pretty universally accepted that massage is not outperforming. <laughs> it's not remarkable in terms of its efficacy. So um, what's interesting, I think, about Sarah and my conversation in this moment is actually our history <laughs> as friends. I met Sarah when I was actually learning to teach self-massage, and she was currently training uh, people to teach self-massage. And here we are now, several years later, neither of us, to my knowledge, are teaching people how to teach self-massage. I still offer self-massage in my classes. Sarah will chime in about how she incorporates massage into her PT practice. But uh, we've come a ways from where we were in terms of our understanding of things and why we're doing what we're doing. And we're here now partnering together on Movement Logic to have this conversation. Uh, so I, I like to share a little bit of that, that timeline and that history, because I do think it is going to be re relevant to what, to what we talk about today. Um, before we get into it, uh, Sarah and I, while we do have an extensive massage and self-massage background, uh, we have not had this conversation before. Uh, we've not planned what we're going to say. It's unscripted. And um, it's really just us uh, bringing to the table our own ideas and opinions um, and understanding of some of these topics surrounding self-massage to kind of think out loud together, which is one of my favorite ways to learn. So let's start with our first question, which I think is a great question. Actually, it's, it's my kind of question. What is massage? It's so philosophical. Uh, what counts as massage 
and what doesn't count as massage. So I'm going to ask you, Sarah, to, to start us off. That is a very Laurel question. Uh, <laughs> it is a, it is a less Sarah question, but I'm going to give it a stab. Um, Interesting. Cause you came up with a question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I thought you were going to just jump right in. Maybe I'm rubbing off on you. <laughs> no <Maybe>. pun intended. <laughs> um, I'm very tempted to start with Webster's Dictionary defines massage as, you know, blah, 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 but no. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it depends on the lens with which you are looking at it that will give you whatever your your working definition might be. If if I'm very, very, uh, we're looking at it just from a like a biomechanical tissue standpoint, it is some sort of deformation of your tissue. Uh, whether it is a person or a ball or a foam roller or the corner of a wall up against your rhomboids or... Can, can I just jump in with a quick question? Yeah. What is deformation in the context you're using it? And mm. are we talking about temporary or permanent deformation? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Good questions. Deformation literally means like if you took your thumb and you stuck it in part of your muscle, you have deformed the tissue underneath it by pushing down on it. So that's literally all I mean. Um, as the second I take my thumb away, I am no longer creating that force into the tissue. Um, so I'm, I'm being very uh, nitpicky around like not, not, not over-defining it, meaning it's literally just you're pushing, you're deforming tissue in that moment that it's happening. The lasting effect of it is what is really in question mm -hmm. and the impact of it and what are we actually touching when we touch and, and what um, tissues can we actually, you know, try to change and what can, what can't we change and mm -hmm. what is the benefit of, of trying to create that change anyway. But I'm, I'm mm -hmm. literally just saying like, I stick my finger in your leg and it, I make a dent. And then when I take my finger away, the dent goes away. Thank God. That's it. <laughs> right. I just keep poking you and leaving like dents in your body. I would look really different if that were the case. <laughs> Everything that touched me in my life created some permanent deformation. I mean, I would just be a series of, I would be covered in, in dents. I think we all would. <laughs> I'd be really but, stretched out. <laughs> yeah, just a really strange kind of like liquidy person. But I think, you know, one of the problems with research about the, not problems, but difficulties, inherent difficulties in trying Restraints. to research yeah. uh, massage is that it's so to create to create research that that is actually um, quantifiable, you have to try to create a really homogenous group of people that you're studying. And it's really hard to do that. And mm -hmm. especially if, with something that is so individual as people's perception of massage or how, how they feel afterwards or whether or not it improves their performance. So mm -hmm. to my perspective, you know, it's kind of like, I'm just a very like, don't throw anything out person mm -hmm. because you never know if it's going to be the thing that helps the person in front of you. Yeah. You know, I, I did do a little digging and I did find that there is actually pretty conclusive evidence, just going to toss this out there, mm -hmm. that massage has been able to show positive outcomes for depression and anxiety. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted to toss that out there. Um, yeah. Okay. So what is massage? What counts as massage and what doesn't? I don't know what doesn't count as massage. It doesn't <laughs> put a dent, like deformation in your tissue. What, what, I don't know. What do you think doesn't count as massage? Uh, well, I think that, you know, I have 
been teaching yoga for 15 years and I definitely employ touch as a tool and I do it in a number of ways. I was never real big on administering hands-on adjustments, but I was taught to administer them and occasionally I would. And some hands-on adjustments were more about just touching the area of the body to bring more awareness to it. Some were about actually physically, manually using my body to move a student's body into a position. And others were actually massages, like the mm-hmm. one that you probably have received in Shavasana, where the teacher comes up to you and, uh, you know, massages your neck. And hopefully they're good at it because otherwise it's very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's actually like legitimate massage. But I think there's a lot of ways in which, for example, as a P, I wonder do you use manual therapies in your practice? And are they all massage therapies? Yeah. And the answer to that is yes and no. Like when we're trained in manual therapy, uh, manual therapy is a more sort of accurate umbrella term for any time that we're putting our hands on people because the goal of what we're doing may be different. It may be something like a soft tissue massage, which is what we tend to think of as like, you know, that general massage thing, there are hands-on techniques that are about impacting or influencing the joints and the position Mm -hmm. of certain bones. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're also totally trained in how to do chiropractic adjustments. It's not Mm -hmm. something that I do in my practice, but I'm trained in how to do it. Um, So there are a lot of different things that we, when we're doing manual work on people, there's a lot of different things that we can do for a lot of different reasons. And quite often people are disappointed that the, it doesn't feel more like a spa massage experience yeah. while I'm <laughs> digging some part of my body into some part of their body. Right. Uh, I have a joke with an old patient where he's like, I'm going to write you a Yelp review. Sarah rubbed my leg and it hurt one star. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, <laughs> no, but you know what this actually, so you're, you're kind of hinting at uh, patient expectations here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that my students come to class expecting and, and, and that they ever have expected me to administer massage. I mean, right. I'm not a massage therapist. Uh, so student expectations, uh, maybe not as relevant as patient expectations, especially yeah. in the context of PT. So I guess my question to you is like, do, so do you use massage tools in your PT practice? What are they? Um, what guidelines do you follow around them? But then also, and and I don't really know yet where you stand on this, but if there's kind of a, it seems as though there might be a lack of scientific justification for the, the administration of massage. How do you balance that? Yeah. If you believe that that's true, how, how do you balance that with your patient's expectations that they receive it? Right. Well, and to clarify, some people just think that physical therapy is massage. So they show up <laughs> expecting an hour long massage and they're sorely disappointed when I make them start using their body mm. and efforting in some way. But um, as far, you know, every, every PT practices slightly differently when I'm in the clinic with patients, for the most part, I am using my hands or some other part of my body for whatever kind of manual therapy that I'm doing. If I'm giving them something that is for homework, that is when I'll pull out a tool like a ball or a foam roller or something so that we can you know, do it together and I show them what it is that I want them to do at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is, one of the things that I think is different about the 
rehab world usage versus strictly for performance, meaning like, oh, if I, if I foam roll on this, will I be able to squat something heavier or, you know, will I get, you know, that last bit of end range dorsiflexion in my ankle that I've been missing or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the use of it in a rehab setting, you know, I have felt tissue change under my hands. I have felt tissue go from rock hard or something that felt lumpy to mm-hmm. soft. Now, mm-hmm. what, what is that that's actually happening? That's the part that's kind of up for debate and different people argue different things. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people in the, in the fascia world that say that trigger points are not a real thing that that's, mm-hmm. just does not exist. And then there are also entire people that learn trigger point release, you know, um, I guess there's also, but there are also, I, I get the sense that there are also like mis, uh, manual therapists within the realms of PT or PTs who use manual therapy in their practices who claim to be able to assess really very specific coordination, p- patterns of coordination between muscles, what yeah. muscles are turned on and turned off. If a disc is herniated, uh, you know, and, 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 or to make like very specific diagnosis just based on right. the way that 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 their bot that the body feels underneath their hand. Yeah. I mean, I do not believe that you can manually assess if a disc is herniated. I think that is hooey. Um, but I can palpate someone's vertebrae and I can tell how a vertebrae is positioned in relation to the one above and below it. I can palpate what feels like tightness or tension in soft tissue. What I was going to say about that changing with manual therapy is that I don't know the process of what's happening. It may be entirely impacting the sort of neuromuscular system in that the sensation of massage is relaxing to the person. The tension Mm -hmm. that they're holding in the muscle from their nervous system, talking to the muscle specifically, Mm -hmm. starts to relax. So it's not that I'm impacting the tissue itself by like, if Mm. I stick my elbow in it harder, is it going to relax? In fact, sometimes the harder you stick your elbow, the tenser the tissue gets. And I've had that Mm. experience as well. And that leads me to believe more that it is that, you know, down-regulating parasympathetic kind Mm. of response that is actually happening globally to the person for their whole body. Mm. And as a result, this place that they maybe are ordinarily carrying a, a hypertonicity, a greater tension in the muscle, uh, can relax. I agree. And a application of massage is much more limited than yours. I agree that massage is primarily a manipulation of perception and, or it's more of an, like, a it has more to do with the neurology of touch and less to do with actually making changes to tissue. But my, my, so my question is based on what you touch and feel and what you can determine about what is probably happening based on that, say, for example, you feel that someone's T10 is positioned differently than their T11 or their T9, right? The thoracic vertebra 10 is different than nine or 11. Based on that assessment, are you then able to draw conclusions about why someone has certain symptoms? That's a good question. And that's a, that's a sort of, uh, practice technique slash preference question. My, and I remember a a PT who was a a mentor of mine for a long time. She's, she used to say, you know, some people are very 
movement based and some people are really hands-on based as PTs. We sort of naturally gravitate towards one and the other. Because I came from a movement world, I had years of watching people move and then hearing about where their pain was in their body and kind of putting together their movement with what they're feeling. So Mm -hmm. my my go-to assessment for people when I'm looking at what's going on is movement-based. Mm. Um, other people's go-to assessment is touch-based. Mm. Um, I typically, anything that I'm doing uh, touch-wise is usually just to confirm what I believe is happening based on what their their movement is. And sometimes it completely contradicts what I think is going on. And, mm-hmm. and it, so that's why it's useful to do both because you, you don't want to only rely on one skill. You know, if I'm only palpating your spine and I'm like, well, that's why you have back pain is right here, but I'm not addressing the fact that like the, their pelvis is offset or, yeah. you know, there's, I haven't even looked at their feet, you know, or something like that. So uh, for me, it's, it's movement first and then touch second, as far as being able mm. to tell what's going on with somebody. Um, but that's, there are PTs who work exactly the opposite or who really Mm -hmm. only do manual therapy. And so their assessment and their treatment is, is manual, but that's not my, that's not my jam. Mm -hmm. I'm a Mm -hmm. movement person. Right. But do you think, do you think that, (laughs) so I have also been listening to several PTs, you know, share their opinions about massage Mm -hmm. and it, there tends to be, and this is my bias, of course, you know, by the way, I teach self-massage and I love massage. And so this really is just trying to understand this from the perspective of therapeutic application and a problem solution approach, which is very different than I think how maybe a movement teacher would introduce massage, which is maybe primarily for, for enjoyment because it feels good. Right. right. Um, but it's a little bit different when we're looking, we're looking at like the clinical relevance of, of, of a treatment. Um, Many describe massage as a weak treatment, uh, as an adjunct Mm -hmm. to movement because of how inconclusive it's been shown to be for creating changes, for solving the problem. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I, I agree because the way that I, I, this is how I describe it to all of my patients. There's active treatment and there's passive treatment. Passive mm-hmm. treatment is anything that's happening to you. So massage, chiropractic adjustment, using ice, using heat, using ultrasound, st- like all of these modalities where you're lying there and something is happening to you. Mm-hmm. I, somebody could like massage the knots out of my shoulders and, and I wish they would. But the second I, st- <laughs> <laughs> the second I stand up and I start moving, if I haven't then re-educated brain about how I want my body to move in the upper quarter instead, if I haven't done what I, what I would then call an active treatment, which is a movement based, then there's a reason for my brain to do anything other than mm-hmm. recreate the situation that made me get the massage in the first place. And that's mm-hmm. when we get people who say things like, you know, I have to get adjusted every week, or I have to get mm-hmm. a massage every week. Otherwise my body is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, or you could actually do some things and then maybe you wouldn't, you know, but so that's, that's how I think about it. I've never, I've never seen anybody really get actually solve the problem because the, the, the massage component is usually dealing with the tissues that are irritated or in and around the area that's irritated or something like that. But I haven't learned anything from that. Mm -hmm. the person being getting the massage, the patient, the the student, I haven't learned anything from that about how I should change how I move. 
So until I learn a new movement pattern, I'm not going to change my movement pattern. There's no, you have to give the brain a really, really good reason to do it. And if, if it receives no input at all, if it gets no information, then it's just going to be like, well, that felt good. Now I'm going to stand in, you know, within the hour, we're going to be hunched up shoulders in our ears again, because that's just where I know to be, you know? Yeah. And, and to go a little further with this idea of changing movement patterns, my understanding, at least from my perspective of what I'm offering my students is I'm trying to provide them with a pleasurable and enjoyable experience so that they keep moving first and foremost, massage might play a role there. But my understanding is that in, in trying to change someone's movement patterns, it's less about trying to solve a problem because that's not necessarily my job. I don't consider it to be my job. It might not even be a problem for them for all I know, right? My idea is that I'm trying to change their movement patterns so that they have a choice or they have some more options or they have actually some more variability yeah. in their movement diet. Yeah. Analogy yeah. is so overplayed, but it's so overplayed because it's so good. Um, and, or, uh, that variability, uh, then would potentially also boost tissue capacity if, you know, loads are sufficient, for example, strength, right? So, um, I think that, uh, this might also be what you're helping people to do, but when you see your patients, they are in the problem stage where they're coming to you to solve it. Right. Right. And is, would you say that a pretty fast way? Mm, I don't know. Fast is a good word. What, what, why are you trying to change their movement patterns? This episode is brought to you by the movement logic foot and ankle tutorial. Our feet and ankles are a pretty complicated bunch of joints that we tend to pay little attention to until they hurt. But with the proper care, we can recover from injury or prevent future injuries from taking place. If you or your students have foot pain, or you simply want more ideas for functional and progressive movements to maintain healthy ankle, foot, and toe mobility and strength, the Movement Logic Foot and Ankle Tutorial is for you. We'll help you better understand how the foot and ankle integrates with the leg, hips, and even the neck. We'll teach you exercises that explore supination and pronation arch support and development, balance and proprioception, and how they all contribute to the mechanics of walking. And we'll explain why old beliefs incorrectly emphasize position over function. Physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court, yoga teacher and strength coach, Laurel Beversdorf, and Pilates teacher, Anula Myberg have created this foot and ankle tutorial to help you better understand and connect to your feet and ankles and improve your overall function and health. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and to purchase. Um, you know, to your point about creating variability, mm. that's often why the person has had, is having pain in their body. If we, if the yeah. source, if we can really, you know, dial it down to like neuromuscular musculoskeletal issues, as long as there's not something else systemic going on that we don't know about, mm. it is that they, um, there's just a, such a narrow, field of options for their movement. And because of that, that has in some way caused whatever problem that has brought them in to see me. Mm. Um, and so it is the same, it's mm. the same idea, right? We mm. should try to widen the, the field of, of movement options that they have so that, um, and that's what I mean by changing movement patterns. Mm. So they're not stuck with only this one way that they've been doing this thing this whole time, but they have multiple ways to do it now. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I guess I never put that together. Um, mm -hmm. That actually we're kind of coming at it 
from the same, taking kind of the same philosophical approach. The difference is that the person or the people we're working with are, you know, in a different uh, situation. Yours have pain or have some problem that they need you to help them resolve. And, and mine, maybe they do, but I don't necessarily have the the details or, on that, right? You no, know, hopefully they're 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 coming to you because they want to improve or they want to broaden their scope of movement options because right. they're not yet at the point where their limitation has actually injured them. Right, right. right. So there's there's like pre they're prehabbing because they realize like okay I need to get on this so that I don't right. actually injure myself and I'm just right. catching the ones that that aren't thorough enough to do that. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, the way I identify, the way I think of myself and what I'm doing is that I am helping them learn and that that in and of itself might be yeah. an enjoyable experience for them. Yeah. And also I'm helping them feel better after class or feel better the next day or feel better kind of long-term. And, and so you're helping them feel better, but from, from that, that different starting point of them not feeling good. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, this is. Oh, this is right up. This discussion right now is right up my alley. I'm like completely <laughs> digging it. <laughs> uh, all right. So let me see here. We we've talked about, you know, how you approach administering physical therapy to your patients. We talked a little bit about patient expectation and we talked a little bit about how, you know, maybe changing movement patterns plays a really important role in both kind of immediate, um, like, like acute solutions to pain, but then also uh, more long-term solutions to pain just by adding variability, having movement options. What I'd like to talk about now is how I, I, I noticed that people who are really, um, you know, massage therapists themselves, or they uh, really subscribe to teaching self-massage or offering self-massage, how there's often a lot of um, problematizing of a particular tissue of the body in order to, what it feels like in order to justify what it is that they're doing. In other words, that it's almost as though they are really in great detail describing a problem and then offering massage in its various forms as solutions for those problems. But I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about fascia mm -hmm. and some of the problems that I hear people describing around fascia. Um, one is that there, there is uh, maybe knots or trigger points in fascia. You kind of alluded to the fact that not everybody believes that's true. Um, I've also um, heard people, of course, using the, the terms like breaking up the fascia, <laughs> releasing, <laughs> releasing the fascia. Um, there's also claims made about improving circulation, which, you know, we can talk about the best way to improve circulation is exercise, but, um, and, 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 uh, and maybe reducing inflammation and, and all of these and all of these things that, that might be wrong with fashion. This, this is why um, self-massage or massage is, is beneficial. Do you, do you believe that any of those problems are actually happening to fascia? Do you, have, you, have you come across any types of disorders to fascia apart from the, uh, the widely accepted ones like hypermobility disorder and Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan syndrome and What's your take on yeah. fascia and the problematization of fascia? Um, I will say, I feel like you are 
trying to get me in trouble with one very specific person. No, no, no. I'm teasing. No. <laughs> no. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. We can cut this part. Like, no, no, just... let's leave it in. <laughs> I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do. No, I um, I do actually also want to say that you, you hit on my, you know, we all have phrases that are, that we hate because they're just so overused. And my personal hated phrase is release. I'm release. releasing this. Cause I'm always like, a, like, like a is there like a flock of doves? Yes. Coming out <laughs> behind me. Ah, like what? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there, so there's a lot to say. I know there's a lot to say and I'm there's here for it. Say. <laughs> the, the, so conditions like others, Don Lowe's, Marfan's just basic hypermobility are, uh, a body-wide issue of connective tissue. So not just fascia. Let's but, name the connective tissue, shall we? Um, all of them. Yeah. Fat, blood, blood bones. vessels. Um, the lining of certain organs, um, uh, the tendons and ligaments, tendons, ligaments, you know, it's basically anything that is connecting, connecting things to other things. Here's what's kind of cool is if it's not muscle and it's not nerve tissue and it's not skin epithelial tissue, it's connective tissue. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That leaves a lot of tissue. It does. It does. Technically somehow we're fixated on fascia. Well, you know, there was a period where everyone was obsessed with their psoas. People, people like to get fixated on things. Remember well, fat cookies? Currently, many people are very, very fixated on fascia. Yeah, yeah. And I find it ironic. Enough, I'll tell you why, but you go first. Yeah. Um, so, so that that sort of uh, pathology, for want of a better word, of of the connective tissue of the body means not just your fascia, but things. These are people who have issues with things like um, they have cardiovascular issues because the the blood vessels are not able to function properly. They have issues. They'll have like um, uh, uh, issues with getting lightheaded when they stand up too quickly for the same reason. They may have like terrible headaches. So there's all these other things that can happen because of the, of the condition of the, of the connective tissue. There are other things like there's a compartment syndrome where the fascia can actually get too tight around certain muscles and things. And then that's mm-hmm. the surgical intervention. Like that's a real condition. Yeah. Um, com- so compartment s- syndrome is, is where there's, there's like a bar- barrier, a barrier has been created by your fascia, by the way, that barrier, that, that, that um, protective barrier is one of the main roles that fascia plays, which is it prevents the spread of pathogens through your body, but it can work in reverse where it prevents an area of your body from being able to like release those pathogens out of it. So, you know, it can result in things like amputations. It can can be very severe, but fascia is a protective barrier because it's so tough because it's so tough. And, and this idea, I mean, I think uh, to, to be completely honest, I think people who have trained in something like self-massage are repeating what they were told in the training as far as the effects that it is having on the body. Um, but I am not aware of any research that really truly backs that up. And, and part of that is again, the problem, the issue around research generally with, with mm-hmm. things like this, but to, you know, if someone, anytime someone says I'm doing this blank to your body, like I'm breaking up adhesions, use my thing. Specific claim. Yeah. Anytime there's a really like, I am, I am, uh, I am hydrating your fascia with my massage tool, anything like that. 
you know, I, I just get very leery around things like that because even the, you know, the people who study fascia and have done for decades still get together and argue with each other about what's actually happening. It's mm. amazing. It's kind of hilarious to right. watch because they, they all firmly believe what they've seen. And then they firmly do not believe what the other people have seen. And then they go away for a few years and they come back together and argue some more. So there is no consensus around even whether or not you can have something called a trigger point that is in the fascia. So mm -hmm. it, it stands to reason that we cannot make, you know, these very specific claims around what it's doing, what, what massage may do to your fascia, to your body. Um, as if we know exactly what's happening, we would have to be doing it, you know, with an MRI. And there actually have been studies where they've used ultrasound to show like, you know, the, the, the width of a tissue has, has increased after massage of a tissue. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean? You know, and, and right. do we assume that that means it's a positive outcome or is that, uh, is mm -hmm. that actually inflammation, mm -hmm. which everyone also then says you want to get rid of. So, well, some claim that, that massage reduces inflammation. And right. then there's also been studies showing that it actually increases inflammation. Right. And, is and some people say that, it, that thing, it, aids you know? in the it aids in the recovery from exercise. In other words, it, it, it maybe reduces delayed onset muscle soreness or the, the, the feeling of delayed that, you know, muscle soreness after, after exercise. But when in fact, um, massage actually creates muscle soreness. Yeah. <laughs> This, this idea that massage improves circulation is flawed. It does maybe to some minor degree, but uh, it's far inferior way to increase circulation to an area than even moderate exercise because it's ultimately your cardiovascular system, metabolic demand, right? Your, your tissues need for, uh, for energy that, that determines the blood flow. Um, the other part is, you know, I'll see people come in all the time where they're like, oh, you know, I my neck was hurting. So I like rubbed it with a ball, but that made it worse. I'm like, yeah, sometimes tissue d wants to be left alone. Mm. Sometimes it's already irritated and the irritant of you deforming the tissue with a ball or putting your thumb in it or whatever you're doing mm. is not the best solution in that moment. It, it doesn't need to be poked anymore. It needs mm -hmm. you to just go away for a minute. Yeah. My, my favorite is that it removes toxins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that one would get you going. Why don't you take it from here, Sarah? Oh, about your toxins? <laughs> <laughs> All I will say okay. is that uh, if you have a liver and at least one kidney, that is already being taken care of for you. That's good to know. The end. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I find ironic about um, what, how people contextualize what it is that they're doing and why with respect to self-massage. And I will again, remind you that I teach self-massage, but the problem that I have is when they talk about working on the fascia, we're going to work with the fascia today. This is a fascia practice or whatever. Right. And this, this idea I find so ironic because I noticed that one of the things that people really kind of jive on about fascia and wax poetical about is how fascia is body wide. It's ubiquitous. It connects everything. Okay. But I think we've, we can also go back to like that list of connective tissues and go, well, so does blood. And so do tendons and ligaments quite literally, they are connecting bone to bone and muscle, to bone, muscle to bone, but the, you know, also, you know, 
So is, so is fat potentially connecting everything and body wide. But what I find kind of ironic about this idea that we're going to just focus on the fascia and talk about the fascia to the exclusion of all these other connective tissues, not even to mention the muscles, which are probably much more relevant, Mm -hmm. is that that is so reductionistic. Yeah, it doesn't. While they are kind of playing up the holistic connectivity of their topic, they're talking about it as if you can even touch your fascia. I mean, you can't, you're touching your skin first, right? Yeah. As if you aren't also touching every single other structure that yeah. is in that space, yeah. including your nerves, including your blood vessels, including yeah. it's yeah. the, it's the old Celine Dion joke. Oh, uh, Celine Dion during her performance, she comes, she comes to the edge of the stage and she sits down and she says, this next song, this next song is for all of the parents in the audience tonight and also all of the children. <laughs> like, isn't that just everybody? <laughs> right? So it's like this idea that, I mean, in some ways, making a claim that any particular thing you're doing is targeting a tissue uh-huh. may be not incorrect, but it's not possible to, you know, it's not possible for me to roll a ball on my piriformis without also rolling it on my glute max. It's not incorrect, right? It, yeah. it, 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 well, it might, it might be incorrect, necessarily guaranteed to be incorrect. What I think it is, is it's not quite honest. Yeah. Because how do you know? <laughs> right. It lacks a kind of integrity that really, I think a lot of people shy away from because they want to sound smart. Yes. Which is that you don't know. I think being able to to admit that and, and skirting claims that suggest that you do in favor of claims that are maybe more general, right? Right. We're doing massage for this really general outcome because generally this is a pretty safe claim to make, right? But it's not sexy, Laurel. It's not it's sexy not, it's to not, be general. It's not precise. <laughs> right? It's not sexy to not call your class fascia release because of those are words that people have heard and that's going to drive people to your class. They, they've heard of fascia. They don't know what it is, but clearly if it needs releasing, they haven't been releasing theirs, so they better go. Exactly. And, right? this, is where, and this is where we start to confuse therapy and teaching yeah. with marketing. Yes. This is where we accidentally become marketers, I think. Because, okay, my, my, goal, my goal as a teacher is to help people learn about their body. And I love using self-massage to do that because your skin, I'm way more interested in touch as it affects the skin and therefore what we're able to, to perceive because the skin is fantastically sensory rich. I'm so interested in how touch using self-massage can help students perceive their bodies better and locate specific areas of their body because that really does help them learn about their body and how to move and get curious. It's also potentially really relaxing and enjoyable, especially when we don't take, take it too seriously. Right. And so I love teaching for that reason. And if my aim, if my real like big goal as a teacher is to help people understand their body better. I better not say things 
that I couldn't possibly know or make claims that are not shown to be true because that doesn't help students understand their body. It actually helps them misunderstand their body. Yeah. Well, you are. It's, a, it's actually better extremely... for me to say, I don't know yeah. than it is to make something up. Well, you are <laughs> an extremely ethical person and teacher. And uh, I think that for some people, the, and this kind of goes back to our, our conversation last week about scope of practice, where you know, are you ready to teach a certain population? Well, not when you start out. I think, especially when in the beginning, at least this was for me, I I felt how acutely not good at it I was until I got a little bit better, but you want to embody the role of the teacher who knows things. And so it's, it's a very tempting to, when someone says, why does this hurt? To just mm -hmm. answer like, oh, it's your IT band. Right. Because, it, you know, somebody probably said, I mean, somebody said that to me at some point and I probably said it to somebody else as well. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. it's also much more satisfying you, whether you're, whether it's ego-based or not, you're in a role of service and help. You want to help the person. So you, it's not helpful in your, in my mind, it's less helpful to say, I don't know than it is to say it's your IT band, but it is actually more accurate to say, I don't know. And ultimately it is kinder to say, I don't know, because otherwise the person go home, goes home and they're like, well, my yoga teacher said it was my IT band. And then they roll their IT band for the next 10 years and wonder why nothing changed. Right. So, but it's, it is, it is challenging to, to mm. not occupy the space of, of the person who knows the answer. Um, and I think also consciously or not, we, we repeat the things that we learn and, uh, it takes a very certain sort of personality not to just, you know, say back to a room what they heard their teacher say, even if they're like, is that a, is that a thing? I, I remember taking a bar class one time and the guy teaching the class said that today we were working on, we're going to be bringing the fat that's on the inside of our body. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I mean, isn't that where all of it is? <laughs> Not like not the fat that you brought with you in your purse, the fat that's on the inside of your body, <laughs> you know, and and uh, I think it's just it's easy to fall into repeating things that you've heard without oh, necessarily yeah. stopping to question if they're accurate or if they even make sense. Well, I, I, I think I've said this before. I am. I'm a verbal processor. I learn through words mm -hmm. and I practice by speaking. I practice by articulating writing i learn by writing and so my process as a teacher has largely been about imitation mm -hmm. and it's been interesting it's been effective i think it's been effective <laughs> i think i'm a pretty good teacher it's been effective. An amazing teacher thank you it's been effective in the sense that i acquired language quickly and i was reasonably confident and what I was saying, because some experienced, intelligent, talented individuals were saying it. And whether or not what I was saying was 100% accurate or not, now it doesn't really matter, honestly. What matters is that I think for all of us who are self-critical and are constantly looking to learn and evaluate what it is that we know and question it, What's most important is that when we're presented with new evidence that flies in the face of what we've learned, that we change, that we yes. change. And it's yes. painful. It's painful because it might feel like you're sort of, you know, 
throwing in the towel and, and conceding, right? <laughs> Somehow that, oh yeah, I wasn't right after all. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can, it can literally just be this, this crazy process of trial and error. That is all of learning, all of learning, yeah. by the way, which is like, I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to, I'm going to try on this approach and this belief, and I'm going to make this case. And then down the road, you find ways to do that and you change, or you figure out that those ways weren't effective or true or, or accurate and you change. And there, there can be a lot of shame attached to it, but I don't think there really needs to be. Yeah. I don't think there should be, especially. Yeah. I think, you know, there's so much new evidence and new learning and, and growth that's happening in, in the world of movement just generally, like if we look back mm-hmm. over the past 30 years in terms of our understanding of, of what different things do, mm-hmm. um, you know, the one that I am currently reevaluating in my own work mm-hmm. is around pain science. You know, it used to mm-hmm. be very much in pain science that the idea was you are trying to find movement for the person that does not create any pain because you were mm-hmm. trying to reprogram their brain to see like, look, you did this movement. It didn't hurt. Uh, but a lot of the new research is actually showing in some circumstances, it's actually totally okay. If you bring on some pain, Mm -hmm. um, not in every circumstance, but so, so, uh, you know, which is kind of wild because that's, that's the opposite of, of what I have learned and what I have taught, Mm -hmm. but you know, then it's on me to be like, Hey, so here's what actually the new research is showing. It's not that I misinterpreted something. It's just, there's new information, right. You know? Awesome. My, my kind of last sort of topic, which I'll, you know, maybe a couple of questions around this is, you know, I don't, I, I teach self-massage. I know a lot of people probably listening to this podcast do as well. I know a lot of students who practice with me do teachers that practice with me do, and I don't want to be soul crushing. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't sign up to do this. That's okay. I'll do that. I'll, I'll do that part to crush people's spirit and go, eh big red X wrong, wrong, wrong. And, and so I want to actually end on what I feel and what you feel are actually some really strong benefits massage. And, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. And potentially good reasons to, to introduce it to, you know, students in my case. And, and, and if you think uh, patients in your case, uh, you can share about that. So, so my question is, um, what are the benefits of, of massage in, in a therapeutic setting? Does everyone need to incorporate massage in some way? Are there certain people who don't need it? I'll start with those. Okay. <laughs> Just those small questions. Yeah. So what are, what are the benefits? Um, well, and, and to be fair as well, some people don't like it. Uh-huh. Some people really, really don't like being touched by other people. And yeah, so and being touched by other people is, is very different than self-massage for sure. For that's sure. true. Or even just the sensation of massage. Sometimes people just don't like mm-hmm. the way that it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, certainly I look at it as a way to help my patients regulate their nervous system. And when people have pain, especially if the pain is chronic or if it is really, really high level acute, uh, it is a, it is a, I mean, I'm going to curse and just, I apologize in advance, but it is a shit show for your nervous system. It <laughs> is just, it's brutal. It's, mm. it's, it's a, it's a tornado of mess. 
Mm-hmm. And if we discover that, you know, in our sort of exploration together of what feels good, if we discover something that helps to quiet down the craziness and helps that person actually relax, that mm-hmm. they can get into these more parasympathetic states and they can uh, not only have their pain reduced, but in the case of self-massage, reduce it themselves. Right. That's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge in terms of getting them out of pain long-term. Yeah. So that's generally what I'm doing. If, if there's something where it's like, we're trying to improve range of motion, I don't go to massage for that. That's not what I use it for. Mm-hmm. But if it's something where this is a like, you know, high anxiety level person, they have a lot of tension that they're walking around with in their body. I'll give them some stuff to do and be like, okay, do this and then do your homework because I want them, I want their body to be in as, in as relaxed a state as possible when they then go to do whatever the active movement things that I want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes, you know, and, and, it, and it really depends person to person. There's been people that like, literally the only homework I give them is you're going to take this sponge ball and you're going to put it on your belly and you're just going to lie face down for, you know, 20 minutes and roll around and that's it mm-hmm. because there is so much going on that I can't, I can't get to any of it until we, we sort of get through that. Mm -hmm. Um, I have patients where, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about one person in particular where they've had so many people put their hands on them and either not get them better or make them feel worse. Mm -hmm. That part of it is either the sort of like the autonomy of, of doing it yourself. Right. But also um, me using touch as a way to make myself a trusted uh, you know, clinician, as opposed mm-hmm. to one of the many that have proved themselves untrustworthy. And that's a, that's a very specific thing to do. And that's less necessarily about changing tissue. And it's more about, you know, showing, you know, confidence in your, in your ability and your, your ability to watch, to, to be aware of how the person's responding to what you're doing and not just be yeah. like, I'm just going to shove my elbow as hard as I can into this part of your body until it, until it gives up. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's, it's a very powerful way. I imagine I don't, I don't, I'm not a massage therapist, but I imagine it's a very powerful way to establish trust. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And you, and you sometimes, you know, see, you see people fight you, you know, mm -hmm. consciously or not, you know, you see people fight you and then you see hopefully the moment where they stop fighting you, or sometimes people are just like, they're ready to, to not fight you. And they're just, you know, go full jellyfish or whatever. But mm-hmm. a lot of the time you see that sort of internal battle where they're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And, and then, um, you know, hopefully you can make some change. And you had two other I, questions, but I don't remember what they are. Oh, it's okay. No, you kind of answer like, are certain, are there certain people who don't need massage? I guess like certain people don't like it. And I, it sounds like it's more yeah. of a preference thing, really. Um, I yeah. find that massage for myself I found that massage was a wonderful way to experience experience touch in a way that felt safe and to explore touch for its own sake after Mm -hmm. my mother passed away. And it was very, it was actually a very emotional experience. I would cry almost every single time. Sometimes I would sob and I now recognize that it wasn't massage It wasn't the releasing of emotions, say, that was causing me to cry. It was the fact that I had returned home from helping my mother die Mm -hmm. after several months in hospice. And I had started taking care of myself. That's Mm -hmm. what caused me to cry. Mm 
And so being cared for, being cared for, I think is an emotional experience. I'm not sure that myofascial release is. And for me, that emotional experience, that emotional experience was incredibly cathartic and it ended up actually being in and of itself. It helped me to recognize my own crying, helped me to recognize that I was potentially in need of more help, more support, more Mm -hmm. care. So I sought out a therapist, a grief counselor. And so I think self-massage actually occupies and, and, and massage as well. Of course, who is touching you becomes very important then, right? When we're doing self-massage, I don't even think it matters what you use to touch yourself with. Honestly, you're the one touching yourself, right? It's just what you prefer, but the interpersonal dynamic of the person administering the massage, the person receiving is, is very, very important in that case. But I, I think that what massage does is it, it offers us uh, potentially when I think when presented well, an opportunity to explore touch for its own sake and to express agency, our own agency, specifically through self-massage and to experience touch and agency and safety all together in the same experience. I think that this is, this is where people who do teach self-massage to, to trauma affected populations, see how it works, see how it helps anecdotally. But there, again, I think is some pretty good evidence to suggest that massage can reduce uh, the symptoms of anxiety and depression as well. And I wonder, you know, because that <laughs> those are complex conditions. So I wonder, you know, we can't really probably name specific mechanisms for why, but I wonder if it might have something to do with this intersection between agency, touch, and safety. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and I think as well, there is, you know, again, if, if, if somebody, if somebody likes massage or they enjoy it, there is that, uh, like serotonin release potentially there's a yeah. neurotransmitter, you know, for sure that might be a part of what, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit spitballing, but that might yeah. be part of how it's impacting, you know, someone with a, a depression or anxiety. Yeah. Um, yep. But it certainly is impacting their general tone, right. Yeah. From sympathetic to, to parasympathetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, thank you for sharing that about your, your experience with your mom. is. Yeah. really lovely. And, and I think it's, um, I think that is rather than, I think it's a more useful way to think about massage rather than trying to determine what exactly, what tissue exactly am I impacted? Because it's, it's basically not really possible. Right. If we take a step back and we look at it as a tool of, that's more holistic, that's mm-hmm. addressing the whole person's needs, not necessarily the knot in their upper trapezius, say. Mm-hmm. And and how impactful it can be under those circumstances. I think that's mm-hmm. that's really probably a more a more useful way for people to frame their work when they're using, uh, if they themselves are massage therapists or if they're teaching people how to use um, self-massage tools. Um, you know, I think that could be a, a more helpful framework. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think we've covered a lot. Yes. We've covered a lot. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. I know I've just had lots of light bulbs go off and having it with you. So I really want to thank you for bringing in your perspective and really causing me to think differently and in new ways about this topic. A note to you listeners, 
you can check out our show notes for links to references we mentioned in the podcast. And you can also visit our website, movementlogictutorials.com, where you can get on our mailing list to know about sales on our tutorials. You can also watch the uncut raw version of this episode <laughs> if you want to see uh what sarah and and my facial expressions and our our body movements look like while we're doing this podcast you might be shocked <laughs> and you can also check out sarah's recording studio where she has basically a rainforest growing in her closet. I don't know how she did it, folks. So thanks so much for joining us on the Movement Logic Podcast. Finally, um, it really, really helps us out. If you just hit the button on your phone to subscribe, and then if you want to go the extra mile, you can rate and review us, and that would just be super cool. Um, join us again next week for more Movement Logic and more of our loosely held opinions that are strong. They're very strong. I lift weight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to support us, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like to watch, head on over to our website at movementlogictutorials.com forward slash podcast where you can watch the video version. We'll be back in your ears next week to nerd out about movement without taking ourselves too seriously in the process. <laughs>